So, we're going to dive into our message today. And to begin today, I want to talk about this form of art and design that I have always found really beautiful. It's a form of artistic expression called mosaics. Who knows what those are? Yeah. So if you don't know, what mosaics are is it's this ancient form of image creation where you basically take all these small individually colored stones or pieces of material and you piece them together in a really intentional and, and intricate way to form a larger picture that you can see when you take a step back from it. And I just find these to be beautiful because they're used to design buildings and spaces in some really cool ways. And I just want to throw you some examples to get this on your mind. So the first one is from Mayan culture. And this is a smaller example from it. This is just a piece of art. This is a Mayan god, and as you can see, this is how it works, right? You have different color stones. They're put together. Take a step back. You see the face. How about this one? This is from Italian culture. What do you guys see? A ballerina. It's not your question. Don't worry about that. So it's beautiful, right? We're getting at this idea. Each of these stones is, is its own singular color, and yet you can still develop shading and things like shadow from a far enough distance. But what really blows my mind about mosaics is when you start getting into the larger spaces because you start seeing some of the coolest designs that you're going to find. This is a temple in Persia, and I just think this is gorgeous. This is from the ceiling, right? Look at how it plays with light and color, how it's almost like a sea of different colors all created by individually colored tiles. Or this is one I got to see actually in person. Who here has ever been to Moscow, Russia? I'm the only one. <laughs> no, so when I went to Moscow, the Moscow Metro is one of the most gorgeous places you'll ever see in your life. It is designed in the Soviet era to have all these murals and these images of Russian history, what it means to be in a Russian and the Russian identity. So as you walk into the metro, there are just these huge mosaics of color throughout this public space. And you're like, this is not New York. You know, there's rats scurrying around in New York. No, this is, they, they do it different over there. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> and what I really love about mosaics, what I love about the style of art is actually how they work. You see, I think they operate in an entirely opposite way than we are used to when it comes to understanding things and studying them. See, normally, if I wanted to understand something, if I wanted to study something, what would I do? I would get closer to it, and then I would break it down into its parts. And that's how I would come to get what it is. And yet, if you did that with a mosaic, it would be counterproductive, wouldn't it? Because if you got close, if you broke a mosaic into its parts, you wouldn't see the image of it at all. You would just see these unrelated stones of different colors that don't really show you anything. Now, what I love about mosaics is they force us to do the exact opposite of what we'd expect to understand them. We have to take a step back, and only then do we see how all of those singular stones fit together to form a picture that is usually just breathtaking. It lights up with meaning. And I bring this up because in so many ways, this is what we're going to walk through today. You see, we have spent the last several months in the series God Part 1, where we've been going week by week, story by story, piece by piece through the book of Exodus, trying to ask it, what does it have to tell us about who God is and what he does? And we've been exploring the book of Exodus as the central story of the Old Testament. It is just crucial for understanding the Bible as a whole. And so far, what we've seen is that Exodus actually is broken into two parts, two acts, almost like a play. 
The first act was grace. God liberated. He freed his people without asking anything of them. And then it moved us into the second act where God began to reshape the Israelites in response to what he had done for them. And the last part of that act that we talked about was this tabernacle space that we walked through last week. This moment when God came to dwell in the center of his people, a move that was meant to reshape their entire lives, their entire identity around who he was living in their midst. And this is what brings us to our third act, which I would just say is the why of the Exodus story. Why does God do any of this? And it all centers around this idea of God dwelling with human beings again. See, the why of the Exodus is like any good mosaic. We only understand what it is when we take a step back and we see how each of these individual pieces have been coming together to point to an image that I think is profound, an image of a God who dwells. And I think what we're going to explore today is going to be eye-opening for some people. Because what we're going to do is we're going to try to see with this mosaic that we've been building what it looks like in the larger biblical story. Because I believe you can only understand the role of the Exodus when you come to see how it fits into this larger picture that God has been putting together over the course of the entire biblical narrative. And when we see it, I think it's going to light up the Bible with meaning in a new way. Does that sound good? So we are going to do that. We're going to look at the mosaic of the biblical story. And as you should with any story, you got to start with the beginning and the end. You don't have to. I just like cheating. Like whenever I'd read those Goosebumps books as a kid, I would read the end, so I'm not surprised because I don't want surprises. But the beginning and the end of a story is crucial for understanding where it's trying to take us, where we're trying to, what we're trying to learn from it, what it's trying to teach us. And the same is true for the Bible. And this might surprise you, but in the biblical story, the beginning and the end are actually overlapping and quite the same. So let's start with the beginning. The Bible begins with this book called Genesis. And in the first two chapters, we read this thing called the creation account. It is this beautiful, poetic account of God speaking into existence all things in our universe. He just utters into existence life as we know it. And it's this gorgeous account because it begins with him speaking light into darkness. We've all heard the phrase, let there be light. And then, like an artist, he gets to work. He starts by creating the canvases. God speaks land, sea, sky into existence, and then he starts painting within them life. Animals of all kind filling his canvases with this beautiful drawing he's trying to put together. And in this process, he creates human beings. We read that he creates human beings with this unique charge. They are uniquely called to be in relationship with him in this family way, the children of God. And they're uniquely called to share in his vocation, to care for creation alongside him. And then at the center of this creation, he plants this space called the Garden of Eden. And this is where I need you to pay attention because this Garden of Eden concept is central to where we're going today. Because the Garden of Eden is the epitome of everything God intended for creation to be. 
When you read about the garden, it's depicted as a space of perfect provision for all living things. All living creatures can exist without harming one another, without eating one another. They just exist perfectly provided for. It is a space of real, true, eternal, and abundant life. At the center of it, we read, is this thing called the tree of life, the symbol of God's radiant life covering shade for his world. And the most important part of it is that it was a place of perfect relationship. Perfect relationship between people and people. Union of human beings. Perfect relationship between people and creation. Caring for it. Showing it respect. Taking care of the good thing God had made. And then, of course, perfect relationship between people and God. Living together working alongside each other, experiencing his presence directly in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, as we read, is just this place where God dwells directly with what he has made. Now, what fascinates me about this account, why I bring this up, is actually the creation account's structure. Because when we come to understand how it's structured, we're actually going to start pointing towards where we want to land today. You see, what scholars have found is that the seven-day structure of the creation account in many ways mirrors this ancient process of temple creation from the ancient world. It was this process by which ancient peoples, Israel's neighbors, would go through and make a temple space for a god, a space where they believed that god dwelled directly on earth. And it followed a very unique pattern that if you read Genesis, you're actually going to start to pick up on. First, they would make the space itself. They would make a temple home, this place where they believed God would one day live. Then they would plant a garden out in front of it, a sign of divinity, a sign of life, a sign of the God's ability to create life. And then they would fill the temple space with these signs of his work, holy artifacts, symbols of what that God is, things to worship. And finally, they believed that the divine presence of that God would enter that space, would fill that space, and live amongst the people who worshiped him directly. And lastly, priests would come into it, chosen by that God, to work alongside the divine presence to care for the temple. And what these scholars have found is that this pattern, structure, and flow of temple creation is found deeply embedded in the Genesis creation account. You see, what they have found is that in this really profound way, this Genesis account is teaching its original readers through their own culture, through their own understanding, through this process that they would have understood who this God is and what he intended to do when he created his universe. See, what it's trying to teach them, what it's trying to teach us is a God making the world, the entire universe, as a divine temple space for himself. What it points to is that from the very beginning, this God made a space with one intention to dwell within it directly with creation and with human beings as his priests in relationship with him, working alongside him, dwelling directly with him. This is the mosaic of the Garden of Eden, this epitome of what God intended all of this to be, us with him. And it is this beautiful mosaic of union 
peace and loving relationship. But as with all good stories, it doesn't stay this way, does it? No, we need conflict in a good story. You see, almost immediately, the mosaic of Eden is shattered. We read a story in the third chapter of Genesis when Adam and Eve, the first human beings, rebel against God. It's symbolized by them eating from this tree that they were forbidden to eat from called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A symbol of humanity trying to wrestle from God the ability to decide what's right and wrong for his creation. To take from him the right to rule what he's made as he intends to rule. And it is this dramatic and heartbreaking moment in the garment. It is a cosmic breaking of everything in creation. If you actually read the account, you'll notice that everything about that Eden ideal falls apart. The mosaic is broken. The pieces go everywhere. Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden. We lose access to the tree of life. Disease, decay, death enters our universe. The relationships of the garden are fractured. Human beings and human beings are no longer in that union, are they? We hurt each other. Broken relationship. Our relationship between us as people and our creation is broken. We lose sight of caring for it. We begin to think we can use it. And most of all, the relationship between God and human beings is fractured. It's experienced through this idea of separation. The idea that after this moment in the garden, human beings and God can no longer dwell directly together like God intended anymore as symbolized by the human beings having to leave his presence as it is found in the Garden of Eden. It is just a heart-breaking story of Eden falling apart. I think it's a, it's a story of our humanity that if we're being honest, we can kind of relate to. And yet, when we come to the end of the Bible, we find something really interesting. You see, at the end of the biblical story, in the last book of the Bible, this book called Revelation, which I don't encourage you to read if you're not going to study it, it's crazy town. You'd be better off starting with Leviticus. I recommend starting with a gospel. But anyway, <laughs> it's the last book of the Bible. And it is this really symbolic, metaphorical, and profound Jewish book in which we find the story of God's purposes for the entire biblical narrative coming to fulfillment. It's a story that's supposed to point to what God is going to do at the end of his story. And in it, we find this final act by God, defined by his direct presence returning fully to his creation once more. It is this beautiful concept of a new heaven and a new earth, God's space crashing into human space and renewing, healing, restoring all things back to what it was intended to be. You find some of the most beautiful passages, I think, in the whole Bible, like the one Rory led in Revelation 21, where it said, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Images of God wiping away and healing and restoring all that had gone wrong at the end of that Genesis account. Images of God restoring all things. 
But what gets really interesting, what's important for us today is that at the heart of this climactic moment of renewal in the biblical story, we find language and imagery of the Garden of Eden. You see, the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, we read that the center of this new creation is a river flowing through it. And check this part out. On each side of the river stood what? The tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In the final moment of God's story, we find the mosaic of God's purposes being pieced back together again. We find a mosaic being put together of restored life through this tree of life returning to God's creation. We find a mosaic of healing, the healing of the nations, the restoring of human beings back to what they were intended to be. We find a mosaic of the renewal of everything broken in Genesis, the renewal of right relationships. We find a mosaic defined by God dwelling directly amongst his creation and his people and us as human beings once again, intimately, directly, union. A mosaic that when we take a step back, when we get, let ourselves see it for what it is, lights up with one image, one picture that the entire biblical story has been building to a triumphant return of the Garden of Eden to God's world. The story of God begins and ends with Eden. And everything between centers on how this God is going to piece that Eden mosaic back together again. How this God is going to piece by piece, moment by moment, story by story, see to it that Eden returns. And for our series, it allows us to begin to understand all that we've learned in the Exodus story. Because I believe deeply that the Exodus is all about the Eden mosaic that is under construction. I mean, this just lights up Exodus. Think about every piece of the story that we've laid down. We learned about how God heard the cries of his people and set out to liberate them from bondage, from human oppression, from broken human relationships. A God that liberates us from that brokenness of Eden falling apart. We learned about how God gave the Israelites his personal name and covenanted with them, establishing a relationship. Is there anywhere else in the Bible where God is known deeply and intimately and has a committed relationship to human beings directly? This points to Eden. We learned that God forgave his people, led them in the wilderness with his direct presence, and provided for their needs. Is there another place in the biblical story in which human beings are provided for directly by God, led by him, and allowed to live in right relationship with him? Eden. All of this culminates in the creation of this tabernacle, this thing that we walked through last week. How did God's story begin? Did it begin with God creating a temple space for himself so he could dwell in it? and he could reside directly with human beings? The tabernacle, the space at the center of the people of God is a space that points back to one thing, the Garden of Eden. And every part of this tabernacle points us to that. 
You see, we didn't go over it last week, but the ornamentation and the design of it was full of things like flowers, trees, fruit. Can you think of something that has flowers, trees, and fruit growing in it? Is it a garden? And think about what goes on inside it. We had the altar where relationships are reconciled. We had the lavar where people are washed clean. We had light shining in the darkness. Let there be light. And then when you got to the center of it, you came into the holy of holies, the place where God told his people his direct presence would dwell amongst them, amongst human beings. A little piece of Eden, right here, right now, crashing into our world. Think about what this starts to piece together for us. Are you starting to see the bigger picture forming? Are you starting to begin to see the why of the Exodus story? Because what I believe is that each piece of this story is reshaping and transforming this people into a new kind of humanity. A humanity defined by right relationships of the garden with God, with others, with their world. A new kind of people who are following God's leading directly in front of them, no matter what wilderness they are in, and trusting him for the provision a new kind of humanity working alongside their God to restore his world. A new kind of humanity who God dwells among directly. What I would say is God has been using this story to reshape and transform an Eden people again on this earth. A people that can live out a pocket of his ultimate purposes crashing into this reality and breaking into our world, the first pocket of him making things right. You see, I just think the coolest part of this story is at the center of this Eden people, this little pocket of Eden on our world is a space where God dwells. And from the way that his people live and love and work in our world, that Eden starts to overflow an inbreak into the rest of his reality too. This is how this God is going to write the story of the Bible of a river flowing from an Eden people with him at the center, a river of restoration, renewal, and healing for all of creation. Moving towards that final point when that full overlap of God's space and human space returns once again. Is there a more beautiful image of who our God is? That this is his ultimate goals for our universe. Is there a more beautiful image of what this means for us? Becoming a people of Eden and how we live, how we love, how we exist in our world. Is there a more beautiful calling that we have been given? I don't think so. I think this is the mosaic of all mosaics. And yet, There's something missing, isn't there? There is just all these pieces coming together, but it's almost like the center of the picture is still not there. There is still clearly a part of this story, a part of this mosaic that is missing between the end of Exodus and what we read in Revelation 22. Because at the end of Exodus, there is still separation. As we discussed last week, what divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the space of Israel? 
a thick veil. Only the high priest could enter and only once a year into that direct presence of God. There is still separation between God's space and human space at the end of the Exodus story. There may be a pocket of Eden, but it hasn't overflowed and covered everything just yet. And we know this. We know this. Who walked around Tallahassee this week and was like, I'm in the Garden of Eden. Who looked at the suffering of our world this week and said, man, new heaven and new earth, it's here. We know that this has not reached that final point yet. The ending reality is still not our reality. There are still clearly things gone wrong. We may see pockets of healing, renewal, pockets of Eden, but the full image has not been put together yet. There's still a major part of this story that needs to be told. And this is where the biblical story began to light up for me. See, I've been telling you guys for weeks that the Exodus is the central story of the Old Testament, that you can't understand any of the Bible without it. And now that we've walked through the book of Exodus, I get to show you why. Because this story lights up who Jesus is when he enters this narrative. You see, at the heart of the New Testament, we find a conviction that in Jesus, this return of Eden was finally inbreaking and overflowing into our world. Over and over again, we find that the authors of the New Testament understood that Eden, the kingdom of God, was coming. This moment of renewal of God's work to redeem all things had arrived, and they came to understand it through the images, characters, stories of the Exodus. You can't understand who Jesus is, what he came to do without understanding the Exodus because the entire New Testament is saturated with the Exodus. You just can't get it. And y'all, if you've never seen me geek out about the Bible, I'm about to geek out about the Bible because this is the kind of thing that just gets me up in the morning. You see, I'm gonna show you a few examples of what I mean. In the beginning of Mark's gospel, we read that Jesus begins his ministry by reenacting the Exodus story. What do I mean? Jesus is first baptized. He passes through the waters. Do we know a story of God's people passing through splitting waters? And then what happened to God's people after they passed through the Red Sea? Well, I think they went into the wilderness for 40 years where they were tested. Oh, well, Jesus goes into the wilderness where he's tested for 40 days. And what does Jesus do after that? He forms 12 disciples. How many tribes were there in Israel? 12. So there are 12 tribes of the people of God caught, having gone through the waters, after succeeded the testing that Israel failed, he forms together a new people of God around himself. And then he starts announcing the kingdom of God is here. That overlap of heaven and earth, the Garden of Eden moment has come in what I am doing. And you can tell because right there, he starts healing people, making right what had gone wrong in the Genesis story. Jesus begins his ministry in Mark by reenacting and proclaiming a new exodus taking place through himself. Second, let's look at the gospel of Matthew. When Jesus goes to teach his people about who he is and what it means for his disciples to live in the world, he goes up on a mountain and teaches from there about what God's intentions for human beings are. Do we know a story about a leader of God's people going up on a mountain and coming down with some instructions for living? Oh, we do. Is that Moses on Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the covenant? 
When Jesus wants to teach his people about what it means to live in God's kingdom reality, he reenacts the Exodus story. Or how about third? How about in Matthew and Luke, when Jesus gives his followers a daily prayer, this prayer that they're supposed to pray every day because it encompasses all that he came to do. And it is an Exodus prayer when you break it down. I just want to see if you guys pick up on some of the Exodus story as we walk through the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, the name of God, Yahweh. When was that given to the Israelites in the Bible? The Exodus. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What mosaic have we been forming through this Exodus story? The overlap of heaven and earth, the return of Eden. Praying every day for God to continue to make that happen. An Exodus prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Can you recall a story from Exodus when God's people were given daily bread as provision from God to make them more generous in the world? The story of manna, the story of the wilderness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Is there a story in Exodus about God forgiving his people, relenting, showing mercy to make them more merciful in the world? My goodness, the Exodus. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Did we hear any stories in the Exodus about God delivering, liberating, and leading his people through temptations, trials, and testings? This is an Exodus prayer. When Jesus goes to tell his people who I am, remember me by praying my prayer, he gives them the language and stories of the Exodus. How about this one? Fourth, in all the Gospels, when Jesus starts talking about God's dwelling, when he starts talking about the temple, the tabernacle space, he centers it and reorients it around himself. We see Jesus proclaiming that God's direct presence and dwelling space is now in him, that he is the new tabernacle space on earth. We read that Jesus having become the space where God dwells, the center of a new Jesus community begins taking part in Exodus work, healing, providing, leading, forgiving, restoring, renewing, bringing about the Eden space through himself. Or fifth, when Jesus gives his life on the cross, we read that the veil of the Holy of Holies rips in two. What does that mean in the Exodus story? Where did the separation between God's space and our space go now? Somehow in Jesus, there is a conviction that this separation is over through what he has done, through his life, his death, his sacrifice, his resurrection. Some way, somehow, Eden has crashed into our world directly in that moment. This is how the New Testament authors came to understand who Jesus was and why he was here. And finally, we come to the part that really blows my mind. Because at the heart of the New Testament was one more belief that I just think is utterly profound. You see, Jesus didn't believe that this stopped with him. When you look at the New Testament over and over again, the authors came to believe that the overflowing of the tabernacle space, the overflowing of God's presence would continue to flow into our world through us. That through Jesus, there would come a people 
led by God's spirit dwelling within them, who, through their renewal, take part in his character, work, and purposes. That through a people centered around Jesus, Eden would continue to overflow into our world. That through Jesus, we would become, in our fleshy human form, the very dwelling space of God in our world. Pockets of Eden. You see, the Apostle Paul, one of the church fathers, put it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? For Paul and the other New Testament authors, they believe that the dwelling space of God had new meaning. It was found anywhere that you found a people centered fully around Jesus and his teaching. It was found anytime a people who knew God intimately experienced his work of liberation, his work of leading, his trust of provision, and their life of generosity came together. This overlap of heaven and earth, this Eden space was found anytime a people lived in covenant relationship with their God, taking part in mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, right relationships, the return of Eden. This overlap of heaven and earth crashing into our reality now was found anytime a people let God's light shine in a world that is often so dark. Anywhere you found those people, there too you found a new exodus taking place. A new moment of God's presence crashing into our reality, bringing the liberation, bringing the leading, bringing the forgiving, bringing the dwelling. All of this relies on, repurposes, and uses the Exodus story. All coming together to make this full Eden mosaic with Jesus and the people who live like him and love like him and do his work in the world right at the center, piecing together a new Exodus of liberation, leading, providing, covering, forgiving, dwelling. A story that when it's all said and done will point us back to one thing, the Garden of Eden here. And that is a story that is just too much for me to tell today. I mean, I can hint at it. I can walk through some of it. But it's a story that could take my entire life to teach. And we are going to take some time over this next season to dive into it a little more. You see, next Sunday, we begin the church's season of Advent, which is the season leading up to Christmas where the church reflects on and celebrates God's coming in the form of a human being, of Jesus Christ, the ultimate form of God's dwelling amongst us, where he chose to be like us so we can dwell with him. That's the season that we're going to move into in Advent the moment when God dwelled directly with us once more. The moment of good news. But we are actually going to take one step further than that in the new year. Because I'm not sure if you guys caught on to this. I think you did. You're pretty smart people. But God part one implies that there's a God part two. 
And in the new year, I know, I'm so proud of you guys. <laughs> in the new year, as I've begun to hint at, we're going to start looking at this story, the part of this mosaic that has been left unfulfilled. We're going to look at what the center of the story that still needs to be told is, because we're going to look at Jesus' new Exodus story. In the new year, we're going to go into what it means that Jesus, in some way, announces with his very life that a new exodus has come upon us. So if you've been feeling like you've been drinking water from a fire hose, I have good news. Because we're going to slow down, we're going to break it down, and we're going to start unpacking how somehow, some way, this poor rabbi from the middle of nowhere in the Middle East became, in the light of the world, a new exodus liberating and breaking forth. And y'all, it's going to be cool. I can't express enough. Understanding the exodus in the New Testament changed my entire understanding of the Bible. So if you want to go on that journey, we're going to go on it. But until then, let us start with where Jesus' story started by entering into this Advent season, reflecting on Christ's coming, his birth, and all that it meant for God's world. And let us approach it with a humble heart and an open mind. Let us approach it with this story on our spirits the story of the Exodus, the story of God with a name, the story of God who hears the cries of his people and comes down to dwell with them, to save them, to restore them, to liberate them, to lead them, to take them home, to Eden once more. Let us go into this next season being a people of Eden, looking to the God of the Exodus, meeting us right here, right now, seeking to transform us into a people of gratitude, generosity, grace, mercy, love, a people that can be a little pocket of Eden in a world that doesn't often look like it all that much. Let us enter Advent as a people who truly believe that we are the tabernacle of God. And that when we find God dwelling in us, we can take that dwelling a little bit more out there into a world that could use some good news. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.